if you have never touched foot in Bellingham, my suspicion would be after watching that video, you would probably want to move here. You agree with that? There is something that is powerful about a bird's eye view that helps to to shape the perspective of our very eyes. This morning, I want to do something that's similar to what you've just seen. I want to to fly the drone, if you will, over the book of Romans and give you a bird's eye view of 16 chapters. Now, some of you, and I appreciate this a great deal, like to take notes during the morning sermon. I want to encourage you to put your pen or your pencil down, put your iPad down, put all your devices down for about 30 seconds because you won't be able to get this down. We just want to fly the drone over the book of Romans, and this is where we're going to head for the next several months. And that's so I don't scare you. It's actually going to be probably for the next several years. We will learn in this amazing book about a man by the name of Paul the Apostle. But much more important than Paul, we will learn about Paul's God. In chapter 1, we will learn about the the creator-creature distinction. Chapter 2, we will learn about God's righteous judgment and God's righteous character. We'll also learn about the the righteous law of God in chapter 2. Chapter 3, we will learn the the all-important lesson of how we receive God's righteousness through faith alone. Chapter 4, we will expand on that and see how we are justified by faith alone. Chapter 5, we will learn the importance of what it means to have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, oh, I cannot wait until chapter 6. We will learn how we have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. We will also learn in chapter 6 about the importance of a very big word, a very important topic. It's called the process of sanctification. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you have entered into the process of sanctification. In chapter 7, we will also learn about the battle with sin. Not only Paul's battle with sin, but your battle with sin. Some of you are winning it. Some of you are losing it. We will learn in chapter 8 about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I, I, I don't ever get tired of saying this, but we are a committed Baptist church. Amen? I just talked to someone the other day. I heard you change the name of the church, the Baptist church. The the name was changed before our family moved here, but we are still a committed Baptist church. But I also don't tire in telling people that we are a Baptist church who loves in and believes in the person and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit here at Christ Fellowship. We'll learn more about him as we uncover some amazing lessons in chapter 8. We will also learn about God's covenant love in chapter 8. In chapter 9, oh, I can't wait until we get to chapter 9. Chapter 9 did me in about 24 years ago. Where we will learn about sovereign grace, about the sovereignty of the living God. In chapter 10, we will learn about the necessity of proclaiming the gospel. Paul says, how will they hear without a preacher? Answer, they won't. They won't. And so we spend a lot of money at Christ Fellowship sending missionaries out. How will they hear without a preacher? It's important to to totally embrace that message. Chapter 11, we'll learn about the role of Israel and God's redemptive plan. Chapter 12, we'll learn about a life that is pleasing to God. Chapter 13, we'll learn about the importance of submitting to spiritual authority and also governing authorities. Chapter 14, we'll learn about a fascinating subject that we refer to as Christian liberty. Chapter 15, living a life of hope. Chapter 16, the importance of spreading the gospel. Aren't you glad I had you put your pencil or pen down? Now, that's just a bird's eye view. And like the video prompts people to come to Bellingham, my hope and my aim this morning is that this brief overview motivates you to open your Bible to open your Bible to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. 
and that we will learn week after week after week these vital, vital lessons. Now, in a congregation this size, some of you are believers, some of you are unbelievers. Some of you have never read the entire book of Romans. May I give you an assignment this week? I'm going to give you a couple of assignments, and this is not a, a lecture, this is not a classroom, but I think as a as a proclaimer of God's truth, it's important from time to time that I give you challenges. Uh, I received an email from my friend Galen the other day, and he said he loves to be stretched. Galen, you're going to love this. One of the ways I want to stretch the whole congregation is to, whether or not you've read it or not, is to this week, read the book of Romans straight through. Read 16 chapters straight through, and guess what? You can do it in about an hour. And so that's assignment number one. Some of you have never done that before. May this be the first week that you read Romans in its entirety. Some of you have read the book of Romans, perhaps even several times, but you've never really sat down to to dissect it, to pull it apart, to, to see what the intended meaning is from Paul the Apostle to the original recipients. The book is arranged in in two primary sections. I want to show that to you on the screen. In chapters 1 to 11, we have what we refer to as the doctrinal section of Romans. And over the years, you've heard me talk about the importance of doctrine and theology. That's all you're going to get for 11 chapters. And I'll warn you, today we're going to do a study of Romans chapter 1, verse 1. So do the math. We are going to talk week after week after week about doctrine. And when I say that to a healthy church family, you should be in your heart of hearts saying, yes, yes, yes. If you're saying no, no, no. Shame on you. Shame on you. Because doctrine that emerges in scripture, this is the, the food for the Christian. This is our food and our drink, and it is doctrine, you see, that fuels our Christian life. And so you can put it this way, no doctrine, which is no fuel, which is no power for the Christian life. So as we discuss the Christian journey, we'll see in chapters 1 to 11, those doctrinal presuppositions that are so important on the mind of Paul the Apostle. When we move into chapter 12, from chapter 12 to chapter 16, we will look at the practical application that Paul builds on after spending 11 chapters exploring doctrine and theology. Now, I want you to move with me now to Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And we want to transition from an overview, the drone view, to actually getting down into the book. And I want you to think of it this way. I want you to think, how many of you have hiked the Oyster Dome? About maybe a dozen of you. It's an amazing hike. My friend Scott Meyer told me about the Oyster Dome a couple of years ago. And so I took my kids to, to hike the Oyster Dome. And it, it, it is a hoofer. When you get to the top, you are going to be puffing. You're going to be panting. In the video we just saw, there were a couple of shots of the Oyster Dome. The highest, the very highest peak you could see in a couple of those scenes were the Oyster Dome. So let me put it this way. It's one thing to to see a drone level view of the Oyster Dome. It's another thing for me to tell you, you need to hike the Oyster Dome if you're physically fit and if you can breathe, Right? If you're not physically fit and have a hard time breathing, the Oyster Dome would be a difficult hike for you. And so it's one thing for me to say you should do it. It's another thing for you to actually do it. And so we can overview the book of Romans. We can talk about all these great doctrinal themes. But now my challenge to you is that you put the boots on the ground and that you actually engage with these principles in the book of Romans. That's exactly what we're going to do as we open this book together. Put boots on the ground and get familiarized with the teaching of this amazing book. Now, the title of the message is A Powerful Preamble, Paul's Unique Role. This is part one of a series of messages that I had originally planned to preach in one sermon. When I sent the sermon matrix to our worship director, Jason Scheib, I told Jason that I would be preaching Romans 1, 1 to 7. And then I studied the passage. 
And it, it totally changed my whole approach. And so what was meant to be preached in one message will now be three messages. And the typical evangelical congregation is saying to themselves, three weeks in the preparatory material, three weeks in the, the, the preamble, if you will. You see, when you think about a preamble, whether it's in a biblical letter or if it's, it's in a book that you read, you tend to think of that as the, the non-exciting portion. I found that some people actually scoff at the preamble. Some people skim the preamble. Other people actually skip the preamble altogether. I would not be surprised. And I hope you all read your Bible this morning before you came to church. But I would not be surprised if there was someone or several people here that read a, a New Testament letter and you skipped the preamble. May I encourage you to never skip the preamble. Why? Because it's all important. We read this in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture. Now, Paul didn't say this, but I'm adding this and you'll know what I mean. All scripture and in brackets, even the preamble. Right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Peter says it this way, His divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. And so this greeting in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, is very, very short, but it is also very, very powerful. I made a phone call this week. And it was the most enjoyable phone call that I made this week. I called my friend Leona and I said, Leona, this is your pastor calling. And it's a friendly reminder to let you know that the book of Romans starts this Sunday. And she said, oh, I know, pastor. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And I said, Leona, would you be willing to do the honors to read the word of God, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. And Leona didn't need to pray about it. She didn't need to think about it. She said, I'm there. I, didn't think, I don't think she said that. But she was ready. She said, yes. And so Leona is going to be seated this morning, and I'm going to be seated with her. Would the rest of you stand out of respect for the authority of God's word? And may I remind you, as Leona reads, this is the authoritative, infallible, inerrant, eternal word of God. Leona, would you do the honors? You ordered. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of of God, oh, he got the microphone too close to me. I couldn't see. <laughs> uh, okay. According to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are all called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Leona. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for Leona's willingness to read this powerful passage. Thank you for this chance as a church family to begin to explore this uh, amazing book, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. I pray, Father, that you would send your spirit to be our teacher, that our hearts would be uh, soft and ready to receive the truth of your word. And may you do a transforming work, a Holy Spirit. May not just a few people be changed. May dozens and dozens and dozens of people be changed and transformed for your glory. We look forward to exciting days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Leona. You may be seated. Listen to what one commentator rightly says about the book of Romans. He says, Paul's letter to the Romans 
is not terribly long. It takes only about 60 minutes to read aloud. It's God-breathed, life-giving words are worth investing thousands of hours of your life to memorize and meditate on. They explain and exalt in and apply the greatest news we could ever hear. If we dare to speak of portions of Scripture as more important than others, I would argue that Romans is the single most important piece of literature in the history of the world. I can't help but tell you this, and I, he didn't see me gazing down at him, but I saw Jason really shaking his head. Did you know, and he, I did not get permission to see, he, he will probably be extremely upset with me, but Jason Scheib memorized the book of Romans. That is to say, uh, my suspicion would be that, that, Jason, you would agree with this commentator, that this letter to the church in Rome is not only the most important book in the Bible, if we can do that, I mean, all 66 books are of equal value, but it is perhaps the greatest piece of literature ever penned in the history of the world. Over the next several months, we're going to make our way through this book. And the, the thought occurred to me, if you would open your, your bulletins, there's something in there. It's a little, I call it a treat. You're going to call it a challenge. I refer to this as the Romans memory challenge. And the thought occurred to me that if this indeed is the most important book ever penned in the history of the world, what would happen if we committed to memorizing portions of it? And I've spoken to a few of you over the past several days, and I've received varied responses to this challenge. And I've decided just to go ahead and go for it. And it goes something like this. What would happen if everyone here in this auditorium, let's say we're probably running about 160, 170 people. What, let's call it 150 because that's the math I did. What would happen if 150 people memorized one verse from every chapter? Now, remember what Jason did. He memorized chapters 1 to 16, the whole thing, right? We're going to have him come up afterwards and do the... I'm just kidding. <laughs> but what would happen if every boy... Put it this way. Every boy that can read. So that would set some... Six-year-old, some seven-year-olds, eight-year-old, right? If you can read, if you're a boy or a girl, all the way up to the oldest adult in this sanctuary, what would happen if 150 of us memorized only one verse in every chapter? Now, I'm not a math wizard. Joe, I'm going to put you on the spot. If I had you memorize one verse for every chapter, 16 chapters, how many verses would you memorize? 16! That's the answer. What would happen if Joe was the first one to do it and Rachel was the second one? We would have how many verses, Caleb? 16 and 16. Someone. 32. That's right. That's two people. What would happen if 150 people did that? Here, here is what I figured out. I'd use a calculator. You like that, Caleb? I'm just like you. 2,400 verses would be running around this valley. 2,400 verses would be in our hearts to share in evangelistic conversations, to share in seasons of biblical counseling, to share when anxiety grips your soul. How many of you have ever had anxiety grip your soul? Don't you lie. Most of us, right? If you've ever had fear strangle your neck like a boa stricter is around your neck. If you've ever battled temptation, if you've ever struggled with loneliness, if you've ever doubted the assurance of your salvation, can you imagine the power of Christ fellowship over 16 chapters, memorizing 2,400 verses. And so the challenge was something like this. I won't tell you which one to memorize. You just, however God is directing you and leading you, you pick the verse. And whenever you decide to memorize one verse in the chapter, you just write the reference of the verse and keep this as your handy 
cheat guide that you can put on your refrigerator or in your car or in your Bible or on your desk or wherever it would be most convenient for you. And I'm going to ask you to shout out a hearty amen. And I'm really hoping it's not two amens because right now I already committed Joe and Rachel to this for them, right? And I'm probably in big trouble for it. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to count to three. If you're ready to take the challenge, which means memorize 16 verses over the next XYZ months, how many of you are willing to do it? On one, two, three, give me a big hearty amen. One, two, three. Amen. That was a pretty good amen. Wow. And so let's, let's do this together and see how God uses it. By way of introduction, four brief arguments in the book of Romans. Number one, we all need God's righteousness. Why? Because we are all sinners. We are born into a condition of sin, and so we all need God's righteousness. Argument number two, faith alone in Jesus, not faith plus works, but faith alone in Jesus is how God will justify us. That is, declare us righteous. That's the second argument. Argument number three, when we obtain God's righteousness, we experience several results. God reconciles us to himself. He liberates us from sin's dominating power. He frees us from the law and he gives us assurance and security. Argument number four, the gospel then transforms how we live and produces in the people of God righteous living. My prayer is that as we mine the deep truths of the treasure chest of the book of Romans, that God will encourage you, that God will equip you, that God will challenge you, that God will teach you, and that God will transform your life. I I, I have big goals for this book. Some of those big goals would be that there would be students in the first and second and the third rows that as a result of studying this book together, students may go to the mission field. The students may decide to pursue full-time ministry. There might be people in this church family that say, after hearing this series, after studying the book of Romans, we're going to adopt a child. We're going to do something big. Or perhaps you're planning on getting married. We have two couples right now planning on getting married. And this book is going to radically impact the way that you enter into your marriage. And see, this book is going to cut across everything in our lives. It's going to cut across the the bad things, things like temptation. But it's also going to help us in the good things like sanctification, as we've already indicated. And so I want to have you look with me at Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 1. And our task this morning is very simple. We're going to limit our discussion to verse 1. I know that might sound shocking to you, especially in a a preamble. But we're going to limit our discussion in verse 1. And our task is to examine Paul's unique role. And there are three roles that he fulfills. The first is this. Paul the Apostle now is a servant of Jesus Christ. Do you see it in verse 1? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And we need to, to stop for a moment and look at that word translated servant. The Greek term is doulos. And doulos is translated as a slave. A person who is legally bound by someone else. His entire livelihood and purpose is determined by his master. The word doulos is a a, a prominent word in the pages of the New Testament. It's literally sprinkled all over the pages of the New Testament. Let me show you a few places that it occurs. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants, that is doulos, of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Titus chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ 
to those who have obtained faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Several weeks ago, we studied the book of Jude together. Jude 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who are called. I want you to tuck away that word called. We'll come back to that in a moment. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Matthew 10, 24, thus far we've looked at other writers, the apostles and, and whatnot, but now look at Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 2 Timothy two twenty four. and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And in 1 Peter 2.16, Peter writes, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants, as slaves of God. I should tell you that doulos, which is normally translated as servant, has been softened in some Christian circles. It is not necessary to always translate it as slave, but we always remember this, that the word doulos means servant slash slave. In the translation that I read from and study from and preach from, the English Standard Version, you see, as most of you have before you, Paul, a, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's not improperly translated. However, I want you to remember, it would be a great time to write above servant, slave in your Bible. So long as we remember that the word recalls the image of a slave or on safe territory. It was several years ago at a previous church. I remember teaching a course on the Christian life. It was a basic course on the Christian life for new believers, but I also had some seasoned believers and also some elders in this class. One aspect of this course focused on our status, this is for Christians, as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the elders, not one of the new believers, one of the elders in that class raised his hand. And I called upon him and he said, I am uncomfortable being referred to as a slave. He went on to say, I refuse to be labeled as a slave. Now, I sympathized with his lament. I understand the baggage. Probably the biggest black eye in American history is the sin of slavery. I can't think of anything good about it. It was pure, unadulterated evil. And so when my friend raised the concern about being referred to as a slave, I sympathized with his objection. But there's only one big problem with his objection. His objection was not rooted in Scripture. And so I patiently and gently pled with him. And affirm to him that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are slaves to sin and there are slaves to righteousness. Listen to what Paul says in Romans six seventeen and 18. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become, guess what he says, slaves of righteousness. And so what Paul does is this. He tells us there are two broad categories. You say, I don't like to be categorized. Do you know that postmodern people don't like to be categorized or put into boxes? So if you're a, a, a student of postmodernity, if you are a child of postmodernity and you don't like to be pigeonholed or categorized, how do I say this really graciously? Get used to it, right? There's only two kinds of people. You are a slave to sin. That means you're a non-Christian and you are presently under almighty God's wrath. Or you are a slave to righteousness. And we're going to see what the implications of that are in a moment. In his book, 
entitled Slave by John MacArthur. He addresses this matter. In the book, he suggests that some people are seeking to redefine what it means to be a Christian. Because they're uncomfortable with this language of being a a slave of God or a slave to righteousness. For example, and I referred to this book a few weeks ago, in Rachel Hollis's best-selling book entitled Girl Stop Apologizing. I just thought of a, a clever little play. I Maybe I'll do this down the road. Maybe I'll write an article called Christian Girls Stop Reading This Book. That's my way of saying to the ladies, to the women at Christ Fellowship, this is not a book you want to read. The only ones that should be reading this book are people who want to read it to critique it to exercise Christian discernment. And so in this book, Rachel Hollis, the author, encourages her readers to believe in themselves. You say, what's the big deal with that? You need to believe in yourself. Well, there's another, and I say this loosely and in quotes, a woman by the name of Paula White who calls herself a preacher. She's also uh, an advisor to the president of the United States of America. She recently said this. Are you ready? Anyone who tells you to deny yourself is Satan. End quote. One more time. Anyone who tells you to deny yourself is Satan. End quote. Now, there's a big problem with this. The, the believe in yourself crowd and the don't deny yourself crowd. This is the polar opposite of what Jesus Christ said. He said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The New Testament clearly describes the meaning of what it means to be a Christian, namely a wholehearted follower of Christ. And so John MacArthur picks on, picks up that same theme. And he describes it in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, where he argues that Christian discipleship is, quote, one that demands a deep affection for Christ, allegiance to him, and submission to his word. I should tell you when that, publish, that book was published, I believe in, off the top of my head, 1988, it, was, it caused a firestorm of controversy because of quotes like this. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you obey Jesus Christ. And the charge from MacArthur's critics was, that's works-based salvation. And I can tell you as one who has followed the ministry of Dr. MacArthur for over 35 years, as long as I can remember, Dr. MacArthur has never taught or preached works-based salvation. What he does say is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you must obey Jesus. If you choose to not obey Jesus, you are not a Christian. Amen? So we've barely scratched the surface of the first verse in the book of Romans, and I'm already compelled to ask you a question. A compelling question, a critical question. Are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to righteousness? That would be worth jotting down as we walk through the book of Romans together over the next several months. Am I a slave to sin or am I a slave to righteousness? And my privilege and my obligation and my duty is to say to all the people who are slaves to sin, turn from your sin and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The fascinating irony is this. It's a fascinating irony. The the people who are slaves to sin, they think they're the ones that are really free. Have you discovered that with non-believers? Is those who are slaves to sin, they think they're free. The slave of sin, they're the ones that think they've been truly liberated. They think that they have the world around their finger. But here's the real truth. Every slave to sin is in bondage. Every slave to sin is in bondage without hope and without God. Every slave of sin is a prisoner that is under the almighty wrath of God. On the other hand, 
Every person who is a slave to righteousness, these people are free. These people are free to serve God, free to worship God. Listen to this, free to obey God. Did you know that the person who is enslaved to sin not only doesn't obey God, he or she cannot obey God. They don't have the capacity. They don't have the desire. Listen, they don't have the free will to obey, worship, or desire God. They just can't do it. Christians are the only people in the world who are truly free. And we'll discover in the book of Romans that they have been set free from the tyranny of sin. Christians are no longer under the penalty of sin or the power of sin. I can almost read some of your minds. You're thinking, he says that almost every week. And I I can't help but think of Martin Luther, who when he preached the gospel week after week after week, people say, Luther, why do you keep giving us the gospel? And his simple response was, they keep forgetting the gospel. And that is one of the reasons over and over and over again you hear that we've been set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And one day we'll be set free from sin's very presence. The story has not yet been completed. It's an amazing reality. And so Paul writes with joy as he refers to himself in verse 1 as a a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. There's a second reality here. There's a second reality that we need to, to explore, and that is that Paul is called to be an apostle. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. I mentioned earlier to highlight the word called. It's a word that I trust you will never forget. It's a word that as you, as you study the pages of the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, that you'll never view it the same way again. Here's the reason why. The word that is translated called comes from a little Greek word. It's the word kletos. And it is defined as follows. It's someone who is, is called or welcomed. Someone who is called or welcomed. It's kind of like this. Today, as Chris already indicated, it's eating together day. And so uh, my, fi- my family signed up to be a host. And uh, Carmel was kind enough to, to designate who would go to whose houses and then we received the list from carmel and she said here's the group that's coming to your house well dream's responsibility then was to select those people that we had been assigned and to either call them or email them to give them a formal invitation notice what she did she called them she called them she welcomed them And this is the reason I think we struggle with the term called. Any of the people that Jereen called could have said, thanks but no thanks. We hear that your husband doesn't like vegetables. Right? We're going to go to someone else's house. Right? Whenever you invite someone, that person, the invitee, has the prerogative to say, "Eh, don't think so. Right? When a student receives a welcome, an invitation to a party, and that student knows that there will be drinking and drugs there, the Christian response is, no, thank you. And so to be called implies that you can turn that invitation away or even take a rain check in the case of inviting someone to dinner. But this word kletos goes beyond a mere invitation in this context. Here the term refers to, listen, someone whose participation or presence has been officially requested. And with this request, refusal or a rain check is off the table. Isn't that interesting? And so God, in eternity past, calls the Apostle Paul. He calls him to be an apostle. And I want you to hear this really, really plainly. There is no possibility that Paul could have said, I hear that's a really tough job. No, thanks. Now, this this runs against American sensibilities because Americans love, love, love the doctrine of free will. I like to call it the love affair with free will. There is no possible way when Paul received the call to be an apostle, he could have declined. 
There is no possible way Paul could have said, eh, no thanks, or I'll take a rain check. In this context, kletos refers to a divine summons. It's like this. You get the trumpet out. I have a friend in third grade, and he got selected to, to be the guy that dressed up in the tights. I still tease him to this day, right? He put on the tights, and he put on this goofy hat, and he had one of those cheesy trumpets. It wasn't a trumpet. It was just a piece of plastic or rubber or something. And he got up in front of the whole student body, went, and I'm I'm just like buckled over laughing. I'm like, oh, my word, I can't believe he just did that. Well, what was that? It was a summons. It was his way and all his... Glory with his little leotards on to say, the play is beginning. When we talk about the Apostle Paul, it's much more intense than this. This is a divine summons. God is calling him to be an apostle. There are several things I want you to see. And we'll just review this quickly. This is, first of all, a specific call. This call is directed exclusively to the Apostle Paul. Secondly, it is a sovereign call. It is a sovereign call from the very throne room of God. Third, it is a personal call. It is directed specifically at Paul. Fourth, it is an irresistible call. When Paul receives this call, an RSVP is not necessary. God knows that the intended aim of Paul being an apostle will come to pass. And then finally, as I've already indicated, it is a divine call, a divine summons. I look at it this way. This call comes reverberating from the heavenly throne of a sovereign God. Tom Schreiner says it like this. The apostolic office of Paul is attributed to God's gracious will. Calling in Paul refers to the effective work of God by which he calls people to salvation and office. When God calls a man or a woman in service to himself, his divine intention is always accomplished. This truth should be anchored now in our minds. Because when we see a related truth down the road in the book of Romans, namely when God calls a person to eternal salvation, he is always successful. Wow, that is to say, if God has elected you in eternity past, you will come to saving faith. There is no possibility that your life will fall through the cracks. Now, some people get upset when they hear that. Some people get get confused when they hear that. We will look at it time and time again as we uncover these principles in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Notice also, also specifically, Paul is called upon to be an apostle that word apostle comes from the greek word that means an envoy of jesus a messenger an ambassador one who represents the lord jesus christ and i want to pay close attention to this word apostle because even though we're living in 2019 if if you get on the internet or you talk to some of your friends, you will see, some of you have friends that have said this, I know I have, you will talk to people who claim that they are apostles. I recently received an email from a brother who was asking for counsel with a woman who came to him and claimed to be an apostle. And is she an apostle or is she not an apostle? And I sent in an email and it said she's not an apostle, period. Well, how do you know that? How can you discern whether a person is truly an apostle who claims to be an apostle? Well, there are a few qualifications. And see if you can put this together. The first qualification is that they must be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. An apostle must be an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says it rather clearly. He says this, He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? For a person to be a true apostle, they need to have visibly seen the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second qualification. They must be directly appointed by Jesus himself. And there are many passages that give reference to this. But one of the clearest ones, I think, is in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. 
another preamble, another greeting. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me. If you know someone who claims to be an apostle, they must not only have seen Jesus, but been appointed directly by him. The third criteria, the third qualification of, a, of an apostle is they must be able to authenticate their message and their mission with miraculous signs. With miraculous signs. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you without, with, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now think about this with me. Do apostles exist in our generation? Yes. If they've seen Jesus, if they've been appointed by Jesus, and if they can authenticate their message and their mission through signs and wonders and miracles, that is to say, there are no more apostles. Is everyone with me? Very important, very important that we recognize this because we have people running around saying, I'm an apostle, therefore you need to listen to me and obey me. Nothing could be further from the truth for a person to say such a thing. Paul was called by God to be an apostle. He was an eyewitness of Jesus. He was directly appointed by Christ and he authenticated his message with signs and wonders. There's a third element to Paul's ministry that I want you to see back in Romans chapter 1. And that is that he is set apart for the gospel of God. As I was studying this passage, I got to this section, set apart for the gospel of God. I remember the email I sent Jason. I went, oh boy, um, we haven't even got to gospel of God yet. And I'm up to 10 pages of notes. Um, So let's look at it quickly. Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. The word set apart means to to mark off. It means to be selected for a specific purpose. And at first glance, this might not seem all that significant to you. However, if you consider Paul's previous life as Saul, the fact that God set him apart is not only remarkable, it is absolutely mind-blowing and miraculous. He says in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And so you think about Saul before he was an apostle, before he was a Christian. Saul, the man, he lived a life diametrically opposed to God, did he not? We heard it in Galatians 1. He was a proponent of Judaism. You can look at Philippians 3, 4, and 5 to learn more about that. In Philippians 3, 6, he says he was a persecutor of the church. He oversaw the martyrdom of human beings. We're talking about a murderer, a murderer. And then, of course, he was a perpetrator of evil, a perpetrator of of evil. He was born with a sin nature. He was totally depraved. And you have this this thumbnail sketch of Saul in your mind and go back to Romans 1 and what did God do? He set this sinful murderer. He set him apart. It's remarkable. It's miraculous. It's mind-blowing. Notice when God set him apart. It occurred before he was born. It occurred, as Ephesians 1 says, in eternity past. Think about this. God set apart this sinful man for the gospel of God, a phrase that we will look more at next week. And the fact that God predestines anyone should fill our hearts and our minds with wonder and cause us to worship. I've learned a very difficult lesson over the last roughly 25 years. People in the church sometimes don't like to hear about predestination. I know that some of them are here. And so my heart and my desire is to, is to bring you along and to remember this. If it weren't for predestination, we'd all go to hell. And so when we think about God's predestining grace, it should cause our hearts to, to fill with wonder and to fill with awe, and most of all, to fill with worship. 
God called Paul by his grace. You remember that word kaleo, to call? This is the same word that occurs in Galatians 1.15 and Romans 1.1. It means that God set his affection on Paul. He was set apart for the gospel of God. And so these are the unique roles that Paul fulfills. Number one, he was a servant of Jesus. Number two, he was called to be an apostle and bear witness to the unchanging revelation of God's word. And number three, he was set apart for the gospel of God. I trust this morning that this introduction, I was going to say short introduction, that this long introduction has helped you to gain a bit of insight into the purposes of God as we begin this powerful prologue. My prayer is this, is that you would begin to prepare your heart in the weeks and the months to come so that you can embrace what is the single most important piece of literature literature that's ever been penned in the history of the world. What happens if that takes place? God transforms my heart, he transforms your heart, and he transforms a community. John Calvin identified that the theme of Romans is this. He said, man's only righteousness is the mercy of God in Christ when it is offered by the gospel and received by faith. And he concludes by saying this. If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all of the most profound treasures in Scripture. End quote. May all who have received the mercy of God in Christ by faith be strengthened and encouraged and edified. And I even throw in this word, it's less theological and it's less profound, fired up. May we be fired up as we read and study this letter together. For the rest of you, for those who have yet to receive mercy, my only plea is this. Come to the cross before it's too late. Come to the cross before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, thank you for guiding us uh, through this very important verse. Lord, indeed, all the verses are important, but I thank you that you've helped us to see Paul's unique role, that he was a, a servant of God, a slave of God, that he was called to be an apostle in eternity past, and that he was marked out. He was set apart to carry out this very important activity and how, how grateful we are that you set him apart to write the book of Romans, to write many other letters in the new Testament. May you grow us deeply in the soil of your grace. May we never walk away from church without being uh, changed and challenged and transformed all that occurs by your spirit through the instrumentality of your word. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage this church family. Even now as we sing this closing song in Jesus' name, amen.